This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Prolific, who wants to enable world-changing research by making trustworthy data more accessible and super quick to collect. Use Prolific to ethically recruit participants for your research from their pool of over 100,000 users. Go to prolific.co forward slash everything hurts to get $50 worth of credit for just $1. That's prolific.co forward slash everything hurts. I saw the stories about the damage that was being done to people's lives and livelihoods by the use and inappropriate use of metrics, which then prompted me to go and find out what these metrics were. So there's this curious thing, isn't there, where everybody knows that they need a high hate index or they all know they need to publish in a journal with a high impact factor, but they don't know how it's calculated. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and a very Hi. S- James is here and a very special guest, Chris Jackson, who is a geoscience professor at Imperial College London. And when he's not bothering rocks, he's got a side hustle in open science along with equality, diversity and inclusion in academia. Chris, thanks for joining us on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, believe it or not, you're our first geologist. Would you believe our first geologist on the show? <laughs> Shame on you! A show about the a show, a show about the biobehavioral sciences, and it's taken us 111 episodes to get a geologist on. So, can you tell us oh, a little bit? Can you tell us a bit about your, your research, what you do within geology, and how you actually got into this topic in the first place? So, yeah. So, um, I guess my main interest is in the evolution of the Earth. So, how the Earth's crust deforms. So the upper layer we're all sitting on now, how that gets squashed and squeezed. We build mountains, we build valleys, and then how those landscapes are um, eroded down and how sediments are transported across those landscapes. And I guess I'm particularly interested in those processes in deep time, as we call it. So not last week, not 10,000 years ago, but tens to hundreds of millions of years ago. So what can we understand about how the Earth's surface looked like in the Cretaceous, for example, so a long time ago. I, I saw a few weeks ago, a few months ago, you were on a BBC show where you were climbing the, the world's most dangerous volcano. What's yeah. the, uh, What was the story there? They paid me to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was a show called Expedition Volcano. So it's a BBC show um, looking at, um, you know, the the geology of this amazing volcano and also the way in which people live with that volcano so the human interactions with the volcano um yeah so that's why i did it and i have a a background in kind of crustal magmatism so how the earth's kind of surface subsurface melts and how we build volcanoes and things like that as well so that's how i got involved in in that show it wasn't just i got paid to do something dangerous (laughs) Very nice. No, they have they have bare grills for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure, you were drink drinking water on that show. Uh, now, yeah. um, when when we were emailing organising this episode, my, my eyes were drawn to uh, to the bottom of your email signature, uh, and it's probably one of the best signatures I've actually seen out there. And I'm going to read it out verbatim, and it says, "My my working day may not be your working day. Please do not feel obliged to reply to this email outside your normal." working hours. Now, what inspired you to add this to your signature? Uh, I can see James looking a bit concerned by that signature. <laughs> no, it's it's beautiful. It's so it's so considerate. Um, and it's nice that it's nice that you put it out there because I I, I know I've woken people up before and they've felt the pressure to respond straight away. And I feel like writing back to say, don't respond anymore. And I think if I do that, then they'll write back to go, oh no, it's no trouble. Like, you just did the thing. I, I don't want to get stuck in some kind of Monty Python reverse loop of. Are you yeah. thinking a bit like the reply or to, to the mailing lists when people say please don't reply, please don't reply all to the mailing list? While yeah, they reply, reply all. all to say don't reply all. And then some smart ass goes, "Well, you just did, didn't you?" And so we could get we could get stuck in a loop here. I don't want to be in a loop. I want to I want to be doing my crustal magnetism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, so. 
that, you know, that kind of signature was born out of some discussions on Twitter, of course, where there was a bunch of people talking about, yeah, how we could make academia slightly less crap. And one thing you've just referred to there, James, was this pressure that can be imposed without even thinking about it because, you know, your working day may be different mm. to somebody else's working day, but you're, you're, you know, you, but if you're aware of that, you can give the person a pass by saying that in your email signature. Um, so I took that. I was kind of inspired by seeing a, ver- a varied um, set of those signatures. Um, and you've seen other ones as well. You know, even my head of department's got one on his email signature now as well. So I think, uh, you know, when, when people in Words, positions of power... Influence is spreading. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I think, you know, when people in positions of power have those signatures, it's, it, 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 I think it shows something. You know, I think it's useful. I think it makes a huge difference. And and I've seen that as part of your lab, you've written a code of conduct, which directs the, the work that your lab's doing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that code of conduct? Yeah. So again, the code of conduct was inspired by um, discussions on Twitter. And again, around this idea of what could we do as individuals to, the, to, to make academia better for the people we most immediately work with. Um, so our code of conduct starts off by outlining what I think is the most important thing about our lives and academia is our mental and physical well-being. So at the top of the code of conduct, it's not like you need to write two papers for nature per year and raise this amount of money, otherwise you're out the door. You know, the, the first thing it says in our code of conduct is to do science, you need to be mentally and physically well and in a good place. And that is the first thing we as a group and you as an individual need to sort of be aware of. So it has that as a kind of statement. And then there's a kind of equality, diversity and inclusion statement about which talks about how we relate to each other. So, you know, thinking about protected characteristics and, and being respectful of those. Because again, you can't do science if you feel, um, kind of othered or, you know, pushed to the, pushed to the sidelines. So I think, you know, that, that's the lead in for the code of conduct. And then the code of conduct then has, a number of things which are more practical, like this is where we store the data, this is our open access publishing policy, this is, there's a lot of things that, these are the conferences we tend to go to, ask me if you want to go to any of those or ask your supervisor. So we have that then, which is more of a a manual because I think a lot of times we probably assume that people join research groups and they learn things by osmosis and then when they like mess up, you know, you, you they get screamed at, but it's because they didn't know there was that culture in the group. And so it gives people a bit of a, a leg up with that so that they feel a bit more included to start with. So that's what the code of conduct contains in terms of, you know, nobody signs it. It's not a legally binding document. (laughs) (laughs) With your blood. Yes. You put your address on there. We can hunt you down. And, you know, there's, there's none of that. It all, it all then is, defers to college level policies which have very strict guidelines that could actually result in you being expelled from the university if you were to do something really really bad so we're not we're not Mm. we we have links into the college level guidance about conduct so it's kind of codifying a lot of things which are already there and bringing them into your local lab environment what I think is interesting is that you have written down what is often what is often uh, unwritten in, in the sense of these are the sort of expectations for conferences. This is how we do things. And, and so many times you go to labs and a lot of the practical stuff is there. This is who you talk to, to to get your email set up. But the other stuff, which is not necessarily, uh, uh, like you said, we, we kind of expect people to learn by osmosis. That just makes life so much easier when these things, um, especially with people who don't have, uh, like, f- for instance, if you're a first generation scholar as well, yeah. these things just aren't natural, uh, particularly if you're a master's student as well, you're coming from undergrad, the jump from undergrad to master's um, or from undergrad to a PhD is quite big. And all of a sudden, you just have to learn this stuff. So, to actually have it written down, I think would make a massive difference for a lot of, for a lot of your students. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is helpful. And people have come from different group environments, of course. So, you know, one section in our code of conduct talks about the kind of expectation around work hours. And, you know, we're very sort of results driven in that you could work two hours a day or you could work 20 hours a day. And what we care about the results. Now, you know, I have a big, um, what do you say? 
aversion to people overworking. So, you know, the 20 hours a day is not what we want. And I, you know, and, but I don't want to say to people, you can only work seven hours a day because some people work in sort of rather drawn out ways. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's difficult for me to police how people work, but I can, you know, watch people overworking and try and tell them that that might not be a sustainable thing to do. And, and in the code of conduct, we try and express that, you know, we're not, we, we, you don't need to be on site from nine to five. We're not going to come check at your desk and make sure like, you know, like do some IP address tracking to make sure that the mouse is moving and things. We're not, we're not doing all ah. that sort of thing. <laughs> so, oh man. I've seen. Yeah. It's just, I, 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 I love the idea that you're trying to sort of codify background knowledge and the, the unspoken expectations. We literally just wrote a paper about podcasting. And one of the things that people have consistently told us over a very long period of time is background social knowledge that I don't get to talk about to people that I work with. It's just shit that you weirdos are just spilling out for hours at a time. And the, the sort of uh, the, ca- the casual level conversation of how things work, what would you think of? And that's something that people really like. It by no means is something that we, we set out as a problem to solve, but it's, it's something that's consistently come back. It's like, I didn't know that because no one told me. Yeah. I didn't know that because no one made it explicit. And you two half-drunken wankers are just sort of like yelling about it into the middle distance. So it's actually really useful. We set out to have a good time. I was never sort of planning on being useful. And now, you know, I feel like I've got to keep my end up. Maybe we need a podcast code of conduct. I have to say <laughs> something useful every episode. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Put that up there. Now, uh, <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of work-life balance, um, I think uh, one thing that was spoken about in a previous episode was this nature, the state of graduate research survey, which came out. Uh, last year, which painted a pretty, uh, pretty damning picture. Um, we've spoken about that and we briefly mentioned it in the, um, in the paper, the preprint that we just posted about podcasting. Um, but what I would thought would be interesting is actually contrasting this to what is happening in other desk jobs. Uh, is, are things, were, I mean, we have the feeling that things are worse in academia, <laughs> uh, particularly when it comes to working hours and the expectations that we have. So, what we're going to be doing with, uh, thanks to our partners Prolific, is running a survey. Um, and this week, for this week's survey, um, which is going out to um, just uh, the, the, the population in the United, in, in the United States, uh, is that uh, this is limited to people who have desk jobs, but who are not in academia. So, I want to see, mm-hmm. and some of the questions that we're going to be asking, um, uh, uh, okay, uh, how often are you expected to do unpaid work as part of your employment, which is a huge <laughs> issue in academia. It's almost, it's almost <sighs> the, the, the norm. So, never a few times a year, monthly, weekly, or more. Uh, we'll discuss the questions when we, we return to the answers later. Uh, the next one is, have you ever dipped into your, into your own finances that are non-reimbursed to support a work-related expense such as travel or work supplies, another big issue in academia. Um, and on average, how many hours a week do you spend working? And there's various choices. And the final question is, do you agree or disagree the following statement? My primary employer supports good work-life balance. Agree, neutral, or disagree? And then we're going to contrast that against some of the answers that we got from the Nature Survey. So, I'm going to go on prolific. You're going to go on prolific. <laughs> press, press. I love doing this. Press start. This is This is- I've got to have to say, Christopher, I'm totally taking credit for this idea. The moment we started working with it, people who did online service, like, we're going to do science during podcasts. I'm like, fuck talking about science. We're going to do science. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am delighted every time he pushes his little button. Is he got a red button on his desk? a smile on my dial. <laughs> it's, it's coming through. So, I'll, I'll just press the button and- Do um, it, Dan. There, shoot it. There, there's, already, there's already people starting the survey. Um, so, yeah. And, and anyone that listens to the show, if you go to prolific.co forward slash everything hurts, you can get- 50 bucks worth of credit for just $1. So, thanks to Prolific for supporting the show and also supporting the live data that we collect. So, we're going to return to those answers at the end of the show. It's already already 10% of our 100 participants have completed the survey. Well, hang on. No, they've started the survey. Keep, if you keep- if, all right. If you keep saying sentences, Dan, it'll be out of date by the time you get to the end. <laughs> so, why don't we get back let's to get, it? Let's get back to it. Um, now- Chris, uh, you you are the co-founder of uh, Earth Archive, which is a, a preprint server for the Earth Sciences. Now, 
setting this up is no is no easy no easy job. So no. why did you do it? Why why was there a need for this discipline specific preprint server Earth Archive? You know what? Actually, now you may now you say it, it kind of gives me cold shivers. I I honestly kind of sleptwalked into being involved in it. And about four years ago, I'll be honest, I'd never even heard of preprints, and I'm an old man. Um, and yeah, I kind of I I think again via Twitter there was some talk about you know these things called preprints, and then it kind of went into where it was being been you know where it had been very useful in in life sciences. So bioarchive was being talked about obviously a lot in social media, and Eventually, mm-hmm. through um, Tom Narok, who helped me set it up, and Bruce Caron as well, and through the, and then speaking to people at the Centre for Open Science, we eventually decided to set up Earth Archive. But it was a very, very um, rapid three or four months of education for myself to not only learn about preprints, because you know when you set up a preprint server, you're then sort of expected to be all knowledgeable about what a preprint mm. is and all the risks and the rewards and 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 how um, infrastructure works because I'm not an infrastructure person I don't know the technology and so I had to I had to learn really quickly but I think the really important thing for me was I just thought it was a good idea and because I thought it was such a good idea for academia I was happy to wing it a little bit and learn a bit on the job while we were setting it up I mean to your question about why did we need one for the other sciences there wasn't one, and, and Earth, Earth and planetary sciences is a big area, and it draws on people working in chemistry and physics and biology. And, and, and you know, I always think Earth sciences or geosciences is this kind of uh, mixing ground, isn't it, for all the other physical sciences? We, 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 we you know, if you try to des- if you try to describe what a geologist was, they are people who are a bit of physics, a bit of biology, a bit of chemistry, maybe a bit of maths. And so we needed a space for all those people to 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 use. Um, and to, and to post preprint. So that's why we decided to try and go for a one that was separate to say archive or a more generic preprint server like preprints.org. Hmm. Right on. How, how would you, how would you, as a, as like a publication culture, I mean, presumably you're familiar with some others. Um, how would you say it compares as a, a publication culture to the hard sciences, biological sciences, medicine, whatever? I think are there, are, are there journals that are exclusionary and unpleasant? Is it a, is there a, a kind of uh, well, I mean, we we we've talked a lot about things like gatekeeping yeah. in journals, ter- terrible terrible reviewers, low acceptance rates, um, completely unearned prestige, yeah. and other things that uh, young annoying people talk about. <laughs> um, but I have no internal knowledge of what the geoscience is like as a collective field to work we, in. We have. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> good. Oh, charming. <laughs> no, because normally we just hold hands and skip round in circles smelling roses because it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, what I would say... Right on. What, what I would say from speaking to some of my friends... Mainly, I have friends who work in life sciences, and I know that some of those people working in like cell biology and and uh, structural biology, I know that there's this kind of mantra that you will never get your own lab or you won't ever get an NSF grant or unless you've got a nature cell or science paper. And and I you know I don't know how true that is. I've heard it enough times to sense there is some truth in it. What I would say about the geosciences that I don't think that's the case. Um, and I say that for a number of reasons, mainly because if you actually go and look at the people who've been hired in the past and even who have been hired in the present, there is, it's hugely combative to get a, a, a tenure position or to get a permanent position in the UK without doubt. But it doesn't seem to be kind of crystallized around just quite this narrow, vanishingly few measures of prestige being public, a paper in a certain journal. It doesn't hurt you to have that, but it doesn't seem to be quite as acute as as that. And and I, and I don't know what that says about the cultures of those disciplines. Whether it's a very long historical legacy in in some of those other disciplines, and earth sciences never quite got that. But I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. If I'm working in you know kind of experimental psychology and things, whether you whether you feel that's something which is yeah. There is that kind of very, very hot button you need to press to to get a job. Yeah, um, it's certainly it's it's more of there's there's fields where 
I feel like that is totally endemic. Um, specifically, fancy medicine, um, especially when it comes to sub-areas of fancy medicine. Um, biological sciences, as you say, with the, uh, the, the kind of there's, – there's, there's a pedestal. I always think of like the, the journal pedestals, and instead of going there, one, two, three, there's just sort of one up there, and then there's like lots, of, lots of others around the side. People put the most tremendous amount of um, – people put the most tremendous amount of cachet in them. Um, and as someone who meets people who've published in them, I can honestly say that uh, – when someone when you introduce someone, you go, "Do you know she got a yeah. nature paper?" Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. care. You might as well. You might as well tell me a shoe size. You cringeworthy. <laughs> um, I I think the there's there's areas of the humanities where this is a big thing as well. Like it's very 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 hard to get some papers in philosophy journals, for instance. They've got tiny little acceptance rates that are worse than pretty much anywhere else, um, and there's a more sort of general king-making function of getting anything published at yeah. all. So that sounds a little bit more like um, areas of the social sciences where there aren't any sort of stellar up-in-lights kind of major journals. But um, it doesn't mean all the rest of it goes away. It's just that you've avoided that particular <laughs> engagement. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting today, actually. Um on, on, you know, there's a discussion on Twitter today about a paper which had, was in geology, which is a relatively high impact factor journal in the geosciences. Uh, and it was very mm. controversial. And, and there was a thread written about how the accuracy of some of the stuff in there. And there were some criticisms of the authors and there were some criticisms of the reviewers and people were questioning how it managed to get in this particular journal. And I responded by saying, mm. well, firstly, Authors and reviewers are not infallible, right? You know, we all make mistakes and it gets through. And then I said, and actually, if you go and look at Geology's criteria for publication, I think it says provocative, timely, and innovative. It doesn't say correct. (laughs) 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 Provocative, provocative comes first. Well, I think, yeah. Oh, exactly. That's the bill. Yeah, that's, a, bill. that's very much a double-edged sword. So we've got in this kind of peculiar situation here, which I think is fine. <laughs> if you know that is why that those papers are in there, that they're provocative, timely, and innovative, right? right? And rather than it's better than these things which are in lower impact factor journals. That's where I have a real bee in my bonnet mm. is I don't mind that. And I kind of made the joke that every paper that's published in geology should have a discussion reply after it because if something's truly provocative it will be you flying close to the sun. You will be pushing an idea. There might be something that's actually not right in it, but it's an alternative interpretation of a piece of data. So it does provoke discussion, you know, by definition. So I, I feel that that journal and journals like that should be a home for those more edgier bits of science. But we need to see it as that, and not simply that it's a better piece of science. Now, yeah, um, there was a, oh, who did this? It was the uh, American Journal of Physiology, I think. Um, they had a, I don't know if they still do it, but they had a series of papers a while ago, which was some of the f- my favorite ones that I read and I still want a PhD that are called View- Viewpoint Counter. Yeah, those Viewpoint, are so good. I think. And they would take two sides of, an, sorry, uh, point, point counterpoint and uh, it's JAP. It's Journal of Applied Physiology. So, two opposing uh, two opposing groups of authors, two different takes on the same subject, and it could be something like the heart literally does this, and the other people say the heart literally doesn't do that, and then point counterpoint, and then two replies in sequence, one after the other. So, I think that in general, they're usually four paper series where they argue with each other, and. If you want something to introduce you to how evidence is synthesized when you're learning about how to think as a scientist, these were like some of my favorite papers of all time. I can remember three in particular um, that were, you can still remember the arguments because they were presented in an environment where it's okay to have conflict. It's okay that this isn't actually resolved. Come on, let's uh, let's let's see, let's see what we can resolve. Um, I don't I don't know how many people were convinced by the other side, but it was it was baked it's, into the it structure. Sounds awesome. I mean, that's, that's I mean, um, there was some discussion as well related to that about um, the value of a discussion and reply. 
because you know the the authors of the original paper get the final word. But actually, I quite like the fact there is a bit of a lineage there of、mm. of the debate, rather than well, I'm going to go and write a paper over here in a different journal, which sort of pokes back at this paper over here, and you know then there's a bit more of a disconnect. Whereas I quite like the and if everybody conducts themselves in a non-terrible way in the discussion, it could actually be really valuable for the authors, but also like you say, James, for the people looking from the outside in into that discussion.、Um, But people just can't conduct themselves in non-terrible ways sometimes.、Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's.、Um, it, I mean, the, when, when they opened that up, I think、uh, a lot of them as well had kind of open comment sections. So it would go point, point, counterpoint, point, <laughs> counterpoint, and then like, who else wants to play? And people, people would write in with all sorts. And it, it makes a really interesting publication series. Is you feel like something's getting resolved.、Um, I very much enjoyed those.、Um, if I knew anything about the geosciences, I would probably read geology. <laughs>、um, but if I if I if I did that now, look, I, I'll tell you how ignorant I am of this. I don't even know enough about what a geology paper would be like to successfully make fun of. That's how little I know. It's hurting my feelings. Now, I can't. I can't even. I can't even make a distortion properly. Daniel, what, stop me from talking. I'm ruining. What, what, is, what is the what is the state of open science in geology? I mean, I from an outsider looking in who has the, the same amount of knowledge as James for geology, I wouldn't see open data being an issue because、oh. they're rocks、oh. and you don't get consent from rocks to talk about. So <laughs> I look like I'm making friends here. What, so, what sort of arguments do people have for、they're、not、rocks. sharing their data within geology? And what sort of the big environment? What, 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 what sort of、uh, what's the state of open science right it's now? It's a bit of a mess, I'll be honest. And there's been some. We're just running a survey, actually,、um, an open survey amongst the community, in particular looking at subsurface geoscience. So this is where people use subsurface imaging, so geophysical imaging,、mm. so remote sensing. Or borehole data. So we're running a survey to try and work out the degree of openness and reproducibility in geosciences. So let me try and give you an example of an easy thing that we're currently not doing very well. So you go in the field, you pick up some rocks, you describe them, and then in the publication associated with that, what you should just tell people is a UTM coordinate of where you found that rock. Let's say. And you know, like a database of where, and then you'd need to archive that rock and put it somewhere where somebody could go back and do the analysis again. We're actually not that great at even doing that. Okay, so the 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 publication, which is essentially just a PDF, is the data or are the data, right? You know, this this the primary data is not that、um, available. I'll give you another kind of slightly more extreme case: is if you're working in subsurface. Geology, like I do, where we use these cubes of data. That data comes from an oil company, let's say, or a contractor shooting seismic data. It's called on behalf of a big oil company. We get access to that for research, but it's under a confidentiality agreement. Data we can make maps, we can show images, and then we publish a paper. It's a flat、mm. PDF, and it goes. Now the question is: Could you reproduce that piece of work? You know, could you? Because I can't give you the cube of data imaging this bit of the Earth beneath London. Let's say I can't give you that because it doesn't belong to me. All I've given you is a PDF with a couple of pictures in and some text. The answer to that question is, is essentially no. You can't reproduce that work unless you actually manage to go and get a confidentiality agreement written again to get that data. So I think in geosciences we're in a. This is my view, and again, it'll be interesting to hear what. Other people think about this, you know, after this goes out. But I think we're in a bit of a fix when I compare ourselves to disciplines where your paper would just be canned straight away if you did not have a minimum sort of threshold of, of openness and, you know,、um, to the to the data underpinning your work. And, and again, I kind of ask you the question back in your domains. I guess there's something you absolutely have to give to prove that you've done the work, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's, it's a little bit more reassuring. <laughs> That, <laughs> James. Often, um, well, but there's all right. It's not. It's not. It's not quite that bad. 
Um, although it's it's often far from good. In 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 many respects, it's perfectly okay to ask for it, at least for summary data for uh, reproducing the the descriptive and uh, calculatory statistics that are within the paper. Uh, generally, it's okay to ask. Um, something I've become a little bit more interested in recently is trying to try to think of a system by which there could be a centrally handled kind of NDA that means that you could get access to uh, data that was allegedly confidential. Um, and even even if it was like de, de- uh de- anonymized and confidential um and people people have tried things like that previously uh journals will if they have a certain amount of distrust frequently demand that they can see uh what they're doing there's a great paper published earlier this year in molecular (laughs) brain which is a fantastic journal name um where the the editor just did that everything uh, any paper turned up was really good i was talking about this the other day um i was just so impressed with this paper Um, about 40 papers turned up they look too good to be true. And he went, hi, I'm the editor. Send the data. Um, and <laughs> about half of the people went running for the hills. Um, the other the other half, um, generally mm. they published that paper elsewhere in a journal that had an open data policy. Mm-hmm. So the editor just went straight <laughs> to the second journal and asked them to send the data from there, <laughs> which, which, of course they did, which, of course, they did not send. But... Um, there, there is a reasonably well. It's low level. There's a reasonably well understood culture of being able to ask for it and receive it. And as a reviewer, when I say send me the damn data, um, I would say it's okay. it's it's reasonably common that the data turns up. Certainly, uh, only only when it comes to uh, especially proprietary stuff in medicine uh, is a big problem because if you say I've just developed this thing. Uh, and it does these particular measurements and it has these particular accuracies and it's a device that we spent $30 million building and my company needs to get VC funding for its Series B. And you're like, send mm. us the data. They'll go, no, it's ours. We're not sending it to you. It's worth a ton of money. Uh, and on, frankly, we're not taking the risk on you proving that we're wrong or finding some anomaly with it. But this is a but then, for me, that's not ac- um, that's kind of like not academic, scientific, scholarly publishing, right? I mean, if you want to get like you know venture capitalists investing in your stuff, you know, don't turn up to an academic journal and then try and short people on the data because uh, do you see what I mean? It seems like quite a curious sort of problem to me. <laughs> of course, but we we agree with you completely. That's 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 why we have a podcast. Screaming about it all, all the time. I mean, it's a it's a it's a ridiculous situation. Like, it's something called the Journal of Vested Interests, or the 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 Journal of the the Journal of Partially Corporate Whispers, or something. That's that's cool. Um, but things that are in that space do not meet what I would consider to be the appropriate conditions of publication. Yeah. But there's areas where it's normal. Um, I think they're open to abuse, frankly, and um, I, I do. I wonder what's buried when it comes to, you know, I ask the editor for special dispensation not to give the data away. The yeah. editor says that's perfectly okay, and then they don't. And it's like, oh, I just think of how many skeletons mm. and how many closets. Exactly. I mean, this is the issue: is that the so the, the reason thing. we sort of got this um, survey out is mm. there's becoming a squeeze imposed by mandates by journals. So AGU, American Geophysical Union, are now starting to say, if you want to publish with us, you need to kind of meet some sort of minimum threshold of data mm. release for us to even consider your paper. And there's lots of angst among some of the geoscience community about this who historically right. have got away without doing that. Wow. And my view is I think we need to get ahead of that problem by thinking about where we'd store the data, what the minimum threshold would be to make something reproducible. We need to have that conversation amongst the community. And I'm saying this from somebody who's published a bunch of papers with work which probably isn't reproducible and the data is clearly not accessible to others. But it's not too late for my soul to be saved, I think, in terms of this problem. (laughs) Yeah, man. there's, 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 There's a lot of people in that position. It's always good fun to go to an open science conference and have people <laughs> lead their presentations with all the stuff they wish they hadn't done. Um, it, 
puts it in puts it in perspective when you when you just haven't haven't had enough yeah, exactly. time and foresight to make all the really good mistakes yet. Um, there, there's 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 obviously um I mean, there's obviously possibilities. Uh, one one that does happen uh, sometimes is that you you need to provide a copy of the data not to be stored with the paper, but at least for it to be inspected by uh, whatever's going through the journal. So there are intermediate kinds of there are intermediate kinds of um, checks like that. Um, also, especially I mean, if there's analytical coding, you provide the analytical code, yeah. and someone's going to run it, and all the same stuff comes out. It's a hell of a lot. It's a hell of a lot better than no data whatsoever, even if the data is not persistent. Um, I would love the data to be as persistent as humanly possible, <laughs> but unfortunately, I don't get everything I want. Um, it's like that. It's just. Ah, okay. Dan, new question. There's, this is getting ranty. <laughs> I can feel the, the, the tightness begin. Is two episodes of Everything Hurts not enough for you? Well, you should become one of our patrons. In return for supporting the show for $5 a month, you'll get a bonus episode every month. If you can't swing the $5 a month, we also have a $1 tier, which gives you access to a couple of bonus episodes a year, plus a monthly Hertz newsletter. Don't forget, we also have a merch store where you can pick up stickers, shirts, hoodies, and our most popular item, the Hertz mug. Check out the show notes for details. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Uh, for this episode, we are speaking with uh, with Chris Jackson, who is at size underscore matters on Twitter. You should give him a follow. We're going to post the handle. It's uh, S-E-I-S underscore matters. We're going to post that on the show notes as well. So, give uh, give Chris a follow. Now, uh, one of the things that you've spoken about online, Chris, is this idea of these structural biases in academia that um, that perpetuate the, the, the biases that we see normally, uh, particularly in terms of bibliometrics when it comes to citations and how we actually uh, classify uh, whether someone's worth hiring or for grants. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yeah, it's about kind of depressing, isn't it? Um, yeah. I- and oddly enough, my, my sort of interest in this didn't come from the fact I had a very bad experience with this. So I, luckily enough, ever since I arrived at Imperial College, have been treated quite well in terms of being measured by metrics. And actually, I, I guess it would be fair to say in some ways I was shielded from metrics. So I never had conversations about you need to publish an X, Y, and Z to get this money or you need to publish an X, Y, and Z <clears throat> to get this promotion. And, and that might be because my mentors weren't people who mm. believed in those things, nor were they people who had advanced their careers in that way. So it was probably fortuitous that my PhD supervisor and actually my two closest mentors at Imperial College never imposed that sort of mindset on me. So I just like muddled along writing papers in the journal I thought was most correct, trying to learn stuff, working with good people. And then I, what provoked me, I guess, to become more aware of it and start to speak out about it is when I heard more about how other people were being treated. And again, I, you know, you're, I know you're a big fan of Twitter, Dan, especially, you know, I saw the stories about the damage that was being done to people's lives and livelihoods by the use and inappropriate use of metrics, which then prompted me to go and find out what these metrics were. So there's this curious thing, isn't there, where everybody knows that they need a high H index or they all know they need to publish in a journal with a high impact factor, but they don't know how it's calculated. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who don't even know that. And I swear, if I walked mm. down the corridor in my building and said, can you tell me how these two metrics, which you place so much stock by is calculated? I reckon it must be less than 50% would know. So we're in this odd headspace where we, we're doing all these things and we don't even know how the numbers being generated. And so there's that bit of it where you're, you're using mm. something which is so statistically flawed and so raging in bias, um, geographical bias, gender bias, you know, race and ethnicity. There's lots of reasons why those metrics do not tell you about the quality of the paper nor the researcher. You know, we end up in a situation like that where we're, we're kind of saying it's the best thing we have. And so, I, I, you know, after I educated myself to that, I then started to talk about more what could we use and why, and why were these things being used in, in academia? 
And it's because, you know, I call it the warm blanket theory, right? We, 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 we need to measure something. And because we're scientists in, in terms of what we're talking about here, we like numbers and the numbers never lie. Right? So everybody, and, and, it, and it's predicated on the fact that everybody's had equal opportunity and, you know, God forbid you're a woman, right? Because like you're going to be treated quite badly by these metrics. But let's assume, let's assume everybody's the same, which they aren't. And then these numbers will tell us the truth. And then we can say we point to the numbers and this God is what we wanted. And it's just complete bollocks. I probably should stop answering that. I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to make something that you just said worse. Um, when when it comes to how individual impact factors are calculated, they're not just mysterious. They're actually not reproducible. There's a series of people who make a decision about what counts as something that goes on the numerator as a citation and what counts as something that goes on the denominator as a research object. And how that is defined is a small committee of people who yeah. work for a company who publish the impact factor. So you can do anything you want, and if you don't have mainstream frontline scientific interests, you can publish something. It can even have a DOI, and it can be literally something that doesn't count towards that journal's impact factor. So if you if you said, I'll tell you what, let's let's have a series of conversations about these difficult topics and publish them in our journal, they they may not contribute at all. They may contribute very well. It doesn't. It's not even. Yeah. It's not even good. It's so, even good so if it's, yeah, itself. it's kind of if you look at citation distributions right, um, for journals, they've got this amazing curve, right, where you know we we, we state the mean, and every single journal has this peak low down journal. below the cited GIF. There's a big long tail, and then there's a spike at the end. One or two papers which accumulate a lot of citations over the two year period of assessment. I mean, <laughs> yep, and all. Bibliometric mathematical modeling of the impact factor has included that there's no model that describes it. It's this <laughs> weird, wobbly, right-tailed shithouse thing. It, and like, that's that's the, 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 the people people have tried a lot of different times. But I mean, if if you have something that it's is not really able to be understood, it's not able to be investigated. And you go, well, let's pull it apart and replace it with something better. <laughs> we don't even know what it is. Yeah. The, the the idea that it's important is it's been baffling to me for years, and it, it goes it goes even further. If you if you form a little cabal of your editors uh, that they're your mates, yeah, yeah. you can make strategic decisions about what to keep in and push out of your journal on a basis that you know that that's going to turn into what the impact factor eventually represents. So if you're worried about the kind of cabalistic behaviour of people who are in charge now. They are perfectly within their rights, according to them, to hang out yeah. and extend that because it's <sighs> good for the journal. It's inverted, inverted commas. <laughs> Very inverted. Yeah, speaking <clears throat> all the way around twice. Speaking of uh, of citations, I, I saw a discussion on Twitter. I think it was something that you you were talking about, Chris. Is this idea of should we be citing shitty people? Now, I, I, once, I once just threw. The, I haven't seen. This I once one. threw this out. I think it was a year or two ago. I threw this out there, saying that like <sighs> there's that basically that there's a shitty person that I know, and they've done a fair bit of work in my in my field, and I think twice about citing them. And I sort of was thinking out loud on Twitter, and people were like, you know, this this is the downfall of science. Like they, they were they were angry at, the, at my suggestion that I was yeah. even considering. Um, not citing this shitty person, and yeah, I, don't, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think about this, Chris? I think I think I saw you talking about it, or, or uh, James. Yeah. I can see the cog turning in James's eyes. But Chris, what do you, what do you think here? Oh, I have I, a strong opinion on this, but we're interviewing Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it relates, does it not, partly to the Matthew effect? So you know, you'd end up citing that person because they've done this influential work, and this person, this shitty person, will win another prize. Because one thing that will go in their nomination letter would be the fact their H-index is 93, <laughs> even though they've abused all their PhD students and, and done whatnot. So, yeah, it, the, I understand the hesitation and, and I can see the conflict, right? Because we're left in this, how would we put it, values and morals versus our desire to advance science in the most rigorous and robust way. And those two things are, 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 are being put in, in conflict with each other. 
I, what do I think and what have I done? If I have a choice, I guess I would choose the non-shitty person to cite. Because I, I think in a Is lot of you think, yeah, because yeah, I think in a lot of research areas, I mean, in some research areas, it's very clear. Person X makes this one discovery, which is pivotal to everything that's done in the field. Uh, whereas, at least within my field, there's a few people who are working on things in parallel, and I can't see that many situations where you have to cite this work or you have to cite this person. So, I think in that sense, you can actually get around citing the shitty person. But in some other fields where there are some maybe core methods or core ideas, maybe that's a a little bit more difficult and you may be ignoring the science, so to speak, um, by not citing the shitty person. And it's this question of, can we divorce the science away from the person? Well, the person's doing the science, but (laughs) I I, I don't know. This is is hard. Yeah. James. It's it's tricky. Yeah. No, well, no, I, yeah, go ahead, James. I was just thinking out loud, really. Oh, I, I duck them. I figure out a different. I figure out a different way to phrase it. Um, it's, it's very rare that you're in a situation where you go unless, unless you're talking about like it directly proceeds from this by, by principles that are extremely clear and explicit that you can understand. Um, I, I, I just, I just don't want to. I, I, I don't put doing that on a pedestal or anything like that. I just prefer not to. So in general, when it comes, especially when it comes to like writing the stuff I have to write, um, instead of referring to the applied researchers that I don't like because I know they're terrible people who've built a big stack of theory, I go back to the science that all that stuff is based on. So, yeah. you know, we, we're, we're talking about what happens to this signal. Other people will say this is social effect. And I'll piss all that off. Let's actually start with, like, the cells and then what happens. And, the th- you know, it takes, it takes an extra couple of minutes to couch the argument differently. Yeah. It's, it's by no means dishonest. You're not leaving anything out. You're not not giving people their due. It's how you've chosen to explain it in context. So I take a certain amount of perverse pleasure in not citing people <laughs> who I know are terrible. I'm not going to say who. I'm not going to say who. Because I don't want to get into a will that, be in, will, will that be in the show notes? That'll be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secret, secret. See, see, see reading the show guide, notes. Guide, guide to sneaky avoided citation. There is a, there is a researcher that I know who has a established relationship of being appalling to work with if you just happen to suffer from the minor physical ailment of being any woman ever <laughs> now i i don't like citing him so i don't yeah and i have always found a way to do that that he's not he doesn't need my fucking citations <laughs> i have always found a way to do that where it presents zero problems for the narrative, the paper. Do I need to push something a little wider? Do we need to talk about a different kind of theory? Um, Maybe. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, there's, the, there's the idea that, oh, no, but you, 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 you have to because you had that kind of idea. I've never found an idea where with, with anything that I've worked on where it's like that oh, ban hammer, like you absolutely must. There's no way around it unless it's a method. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you can't like put an eye patch on Fourier and claim he was someone else. <laughs> like, well, he was Fourier's brother. Roger. There is a, he was not Fourier, a different. There one. is a big debate around a lot of statisticians, and a lot of work is uh, is based on statisticians who had a, some uh, some very shitty views. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's another rabbit trail. <laughs> but uh, look, we uh, we are running out of time, so I want to return to our survey questions. Um, so we got the hundred responses in. Uh, it took about half an hour to get these hundred responses to do about a two minute ish survey. Um, so demographics: uh, the majority, sixty percent, were between eighteen to thirty. A uh, few folks were between thirty one to fifty, and a few. Uh, maybe about three or four were above 51. Uh, everyone passed the attention check. So we're getting some good quality data here. Thanks, Prolific. Um, and now, uh, first question, uh, and keeping in mind, these were people, these are desk job folks who do occupations that are desk jobs who are not academics. First question, how often are you expected to do unpaid work as part of your employment? Uh, now, Chris, what do you reckon for some numbers? What, what, what sort of percentage for the average desk worker who's not in academia would uh, do uh, un, uh, would be expected to do unpaid work um, when it comes to ne- never, for instance? 
I think maybe 70% of the people have been doing unpaid work. Oh, okay. No, not, not as much. Rough. Rough. 44% have... Uh, Damn it, Dan. You didn't let me guess. I was, uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not the guest, James. Let me. You can guess. I, but I want to guess too. This is my favourite part of the whole can, show. Well, I guess. I get okay, it right you and can, you tell me you, I'm you clever. You can both guess the next one. So 44, <laughs> 44% you. said never. Um, uh, now, for academia... Um, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> uh, it, I think it's a, it's a, there's a difference between like your boss asking you to do unpaid work versus the expectation. But I would think the expectation to work, um, uh, to do unpaid work is just, is just enormous. Like, it's just so. Did you get the figure from the grad student survey? Uh, I have closed that window, so I'll have to return to that one. Ah, oh, you clown. Do the I'll next do question. Don't go opening I'll do windows. The next question, but I would imagine, and just it's our experience and the experience that all the people that we speak to, um, that this uh, unpaid work is, is huge. Okay, next one. Have you ever dipped into your own finances that's not being reimbursed to support a work-related expense, such as travel or work supplies? Okay, and there's two answers. Yes or no? So, percentage-wise, Chris, what do you think? Non-academic desk workers. Non-academic. I think it probably is about 30% for non-academics. It must be 150% for academics, though. <laughs> yes, it so, is. So, you're saying about, about 40% um, have different Yeah, 30, 40%. Yeah, right, yeah. James? Less, 20. Uh, no, a bit more, uh, 55 Jeez. Whoa! So, I that. Yeah, I mean, we, we. Oh, I don't like that at we, all. We, we don't have the specific <laughs> breakdown of the um of the actual industries. Fifty-five. Oh, I don't think I've ever got one that wrong before. Well done, Chris. That's much you're, you're much closer, and, and um, you always hear stories of, of, of teachers, particularly in the states, and I think it's it's also also the case yeah. in the UK having oh, to yeah, buy no. their own supplies, For sure. which is yeah. which is just mental. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, but if, you know, academia. Gee, <laughs> all, all, yeah. all of us, all of us have had to do that um, or at the very least you, you pay your money and you get reimbursed and you have to ask where's my money <laughs> it's months later paying you're paying interest on your on your credit card credit cards oh man like it's uh, just like I, the institution that i was at originally basically gave you a card and were like don't do fraud spend the money show us the receipts and away you go um, that is a mm. great system, and it, it relies on, 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 a lot on, on trust. But that that is that is the way to do it. But, yeah. So yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we we have that now. I even have an app where I can take photos of the receipts oh. and then upload them into the thing when they go to the corporate account. You're making me cry. Uh, I know. It's just this. Is, I I had no idea that this was a thing that other people didn't have because even even at Sydney, it was reasonably straightforward. It's good. At, yeah. Um, at, even though I had to, like, I'd come home from a conference with a with a, a, a plastic yeah, a yeah. bag full of receipts, <laughs> and then and then I'd have to sort them. Like someone was picking on me as a kid and made me play fifty two pickup and put them all in order, and then someone would go, "There wasn't any alcohol in that meal, was there, James?" Yeah. Like, What's the fuck? It was pretty much all. Alcohol. <laughs> I could I can probably top that for you. Um, at a company I used to work for, you used to have to take the receipts. And then stick them with sellotape on an A4 oh. piece of paper, then photocopy oh. them. <laughs> doing arts and crafts to get your money back. What year is it? Oh, dear. But you had to buy your own sellotape, and that counts. That's in the S column. All right, Dan, next question. Okay, next question. Next question. Okay, uh, I'm going to do a better question. Final case. one. Uh, do you agree or disagree the following statement? My primary employer supports good work-life balance. Um, okay, so we've got three options. Agree, neutral, disagree. What do you think the breakdowns are, Chris? I think agrees probably 5%, disagree probably 20%, and then 30 in neutral. James? Um, I think we're going to go in order 15, 55, 30. Well, we've Ooh. got uh, 55 agree, uh, 32 neutral, and 10 disagree. Now, can, yeah, Chris, Chris is close again. <laughs> uh, contrast, contrasting that to the graduate survey, that w it was about 30-30-30. So, uh, there was a lot more people who were neutral, um, but um, it, 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 was quite, it was quite even when it came to whether 
their their workplace or the university uh, actually supports work life balance. So, so what's the difference in the disagrees? So disagree, we have about about double. Yeah, so ten percent disagree, thirty two percent neutral, and fifty five percent agree. So it seems people outside of academia, oh, um, generally speaking, their their workplaces seem to support work life balance. So yeah. Um, academia is shit. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we're, we're supposed to be the bright ones, and we keep we keep working in it. Was, it's just, oh, it's just yeah, man. Philip, from 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 ten from ten to thirty percent disagree is um, it's yeah, that's that's almost certainly not nothing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. I mean, this is something I've talked a lot about in the past, and I guess we've touched on in this show. Is you know, you take a bunch of very clever people which in itself would be fine, and then you kind of put it in this kind of weird hierarchical system and this self-drive and desire to be the best, and it just distorts a load of stuff, right? Because a lot of the behaviours and a lot of things we measure each other by and some of the other things we've touched on, they don't make sense. They don't work. They don't, they don't result in the best science. It doesn't result in the recognition and reward for the right people. And how, have we, how, how, how does academia... Do, like, why does it allow that to happen? I think it's primarily old men called Jeremy. <laughs> I've noticed that's a particularly problematic name. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I mean, there's awesome, awesome, awesome things about academia, of course, and that's why I stay in it, and that's why I tell people it is a great thing to do. But it is very odd that, and maybe, you know, the, the, the answer to my question is, is, why does it happen, is maybe these people aren't that clever. Maybe we're not that smart. <laughs> Wrong, wrong kind. Certainly, you know that it's something that I've I've wondered about I've, a lot previously. Is that I mean, there's smart is a very broad church, um, and I know a few people who've gone from science into science industry, and I think a lot of different things are rewarded in a lot of different jobs that still go into the smart bucket but definitely aren't some kind of facile idea about mental horsepower intellectual aggression for one um the the ability to uh get on with people you disagree with and immediately resolve something so you can make progress like keeping processes of thoughts moving between people maintaining internal dynamics um, all of these things go into the smart bucket um, to some degree. And I, I wonder if it's, it's more a sort of proving ground for people who enjoy reflective thought more than anything yeah. else. Um, because the, the one thing, I mean, I've seen this a million times and thought it several times myself, is that this seems to reward over everything else perseverance and persistence. And the ability to sit with something for a very long time and try and think about a an internal way to solve it doesn't seem to have a lot of personality crossovers. I've always found that the um, especially as a not really an inlier when it comes to academic personality, and more of an inlier when it comes to drunk or <laughs> man in bus shelter who yells. Um. But I've, I've never really found that there was much of a sort of typography no. of all of it. People said, there's very loud people, there's very quiet people, there's introverts and extroverts, there's, there's neurotic people and people who can't figure out how to sellotape their receipts to the piece of I wonder if more than anything else it's a measure of persistence and that if you aren't perfectly correct when you say that, because we often have situations, I, I think, that in – corporate environments would be considered utterly unacceptable yeah absolutely and that's the that's the thing is a lot of a lot of things that allow corporate environments to succeed are things which are blindingly obviously absent in academia and that's not to say the corporate world is is perfect and fine it has its own issues but there are some things like i often think about teamwork often as being one of the you know because if you've all got shareholders in this thing like there's a value to everybody trying to kind of you know do the best for that but academia is such this sprawling mass within a department within a faculty within an institution and then you go across institutions there's almost no incentive 
beyond this notional idea that we're all trying to advance science for the better of humanity, is there? That's the only thing that we've got to make us like be nice to each other and, and work together to try and do some good piece of work. But but mm. but we're just like, you know, cats in a bag fighting over a book to do a piece of work. And it's, yeah, it, it just, to me, it's it's kind of distressing when I think too hard about it. <laughs> on, 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 that, uh, on that distressing <laughs> note, we, we are going to... Don't, Dan, do not use that as the splash audio <laughs> yes. for the episode, we, please. We, we, do... we don't want anyone crying before the next thing we, we do We do have to wrap up for this episode, unfortunately. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to put all your details online uh, so people can uh, follow you on Twitter and follow all the work that you've been doing. But thanks for joining us on the show. And uh, it's been great. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you so much again for the invitation. It's been great to meet you both.